And one of the suggestions that the person had, which really just, you know, made me do a double take, but then I thought had some truth to it, was that what has replaced uh, religion for many Americans is some combination of political polarization and even media tribes, where if you consume a certain media's uh, offerings, then you, you, you're kind of joining a cult. Right. And, and, you know, people refer to people who watch certain channels, a cult, this cult, that. But that really stuck with oh, me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. David Foster Wallace, the great American writer, one time said that everybody worships something because people are made to worship. We're just we're just worshipful creatures. He thought that that was a, an innate feature of humankind. And, and if you take away something that's worthy of worship, you will replace it with something that's unworthy of worship. And it doesn't matter who you are. We all know intellectually that politics is is unworthy of being elevated to the level of religion. And yet this is I mean, look, your campaign was related to trying to, to de-religiousize and de-tribalize uh, ideology, a political ideology in this country. It's like, let's talk about how to, how to bring people forward and understand each other across ideological lines. Well, that's basically like going to people who are extremely religiously fundamentalist and say, make common cause with this other group of apostates and heretics. You know, what, what we've done in this country, and this is one of the big problems that we have, is that people are worshiping at the altar of American politics. And their preachers, their TV preachers, are on at 7 and 8 and 9 on cable channels. This week on Ford, the author of From Strength to Strength and columnist for The Atlantic on how to build a happy life, Arthur Brooks. I'm so pumped for this conversation this week on Forward. It is my thrill to welcome to the Forward podcast, kicking off his book tour, his 12th book, the best book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Arthur Brooks. Welcome, Arthur. Thank you, Andrew. What a delight to be with you. Congratulations on this great show. Thank you. Well, greater for your being here. Uh, and, and I'm super pumped. So people may know you from your incredibly popular column, The Atlantic, How to Build a Life. Uh, you're also a Harvard professor where uh -huh. you teach uh, leadership and happiness, is that right? At the Harvard Business School, yeah. Wow. So those two things, I would say, are in opposition to each other, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> um, you also have your own podcast, uh, How to Build a Happy Life, right. uh, that, that people love. Um, I will confess to you, and this is something you get all the time, um, I'm an avid consumer of your writings, of your work, because anything that makes you think that you might somehow be able to live a better life and be smarter about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you do. So like I see your headlines in the Atlantic and I'm like, click, click. <laughs> <laughs> click. That's great. I mean, that's really, it makes me really happy to hear that. Um, I mean, the prominence that you've had and the, the way you've been able to live your dreams and lift other people up through the power of ideas, good ideas that are supposed to bring people together. I couldn't be happier to hear that you're actually a consumer trying to use what I'm doing. And that's the point of the column, How to Build a Life in the Atlantic, or what I'm teaching at the Harvard Business School, for that matter, this book. You know, when I, I retired as the CEO of a nonprofit think tank, and I thought to myself when I was 55 years old, I didn't retire. I mean, I left the position after 10 years. I thought, 
what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I, and I, I meditated about it. I thought about it. I, I talked to people I really care about. And I talked to the Dalai Lama and asked him for his advice. Yeah, yeah, we all do that. <laughs> you know, anytime we're, we're at a decision point, we just just Well, he doesn't actually have a cell phone. I had to go. <laughs> wait, wait, no, no, you don't use a cell phone. You just close your eyes, concentrate, <laughs> and reach out to him. Or, or text him. And, and, and he said, lift people up and bring them together. And that's what I dedicated myself to doing. How do you do that? By, by talking about what people care about the most. And people want to be happier. People need to be happier. And to use intellect, to use ideas, to, to bring love and happiness to other people's lives. What a joy to be able to do that. Yeah, and, and you access the wisdom of the ages and different cultures. Uh, it, it's awesome that people have experienced this since the beginning of time. <laughs> mm -hmm. and that, you know, they might have something to say about it. So I was joking with Zach on the way in um, that reading this book kind of hit home for me because I'm 47. Mm. And you talk about how uh, people's fluid intelligence may start to decline around that time. Mm. Um, so I was joking with Zach that instead of from strength to strength, the book should have been called How to Decline Gracefully. <laughs> yeah. It's actually the, from strength to strength. That's actually from the from the 84th Psalm. And this is a, 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 a blessing in Judaism to say, uh, which is to say, may you go from strength to strength. And, but it comes from the Psalms. And the whole idea is that, look, we have strengths and they have a cadence to them. They have a life to them. And everything that goes up must come down, but there's another strength behind it. And this is one of the key things that all of us have to learn. I'm 57, I'm 10 years older than you are, but this book is written for people who are 27, like my students, or 47 or 67, such that the second half can be strong and happy and graceful, not in decline, but in finding the next strength. And there really is, there is this, big agenda that lurks for everybody behind the first source of strength. If we're courageous enough to look for it, if we're strong enough to go for it, and if we have enough faith to understand and believe that it's actually there. Yeah, you talk about the two curves, uh, which I, I thought was incredibly powerful. Um, so I made the joke about the declining fluid intelligence uh, over uh, your 30s, 40s, 50s, which is not entirely a joke. I mean, that's a thing, <laughs> which you point out early in your book, yeah. you're like, hey, FYI, uh, you may slow down in, in certain of your uh, skills or processes. Um, I'm just going to share a, a story that's so nerdy and wonky, but you'll appreciate it. Mm. All right. So, Nerdier is better for me. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I ran a test prep company called Manhattan Prep for mm -hmm. six years. It became the biggest company in the country at getting people into business school. So if you were to ask your mm -hmm. Harvard Business School students, hey, how, how many of you use Manhattan GMAT? Like, you know, a you, lot of you, them, will put, lot of them will put their hands yeah. up. We made our mark by hiring people who scored 99th percentile on the GMAT, which was at the time 760 or, or higher out of 800. Mm -hmm. So here's the, the joke about declining skills. Um, we asked people to get recertified every five years uh, to go in and take the GMAT again. And people totally did not want to do it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because they'd gotten a score. They want to notch it and they don't want to have to do it again. Oh, yeah. No one does. And, and I will say, too, as the CEO of the company, I completely understood where I was like, because I'd gotten a certain score. And it's like, oh, man, I don't want to go in there and like find out that I've slowed down. Right. <laughs> oh, for sure. And this is a key thing. My, my son is a a four-deployed combat Marine, one of my sons. And, and every year he has to get recertified as an expert marksman. And the first time he ever did it, he scored, you know, the top score. He, he was an expert. He scored expert. And the first thing he said to me after he did it is, oh, it's great. I feel great about it, Dad, but i got to do it again next year. Oh, no. So once you hit that high water mark and so you know, have to do it, there's nothing worse than, 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 than negative progress. 
than yeah. actually going in the wrong direction. This is what people really fear more than anything else. Happiness is in progress itself. And here's the big curse that actually comes for the strivers. And the people who are watching your show are people many, like many you, strivers among are them. strivers. I mean, they want to do the most. They want to take a big bite out of life. They are startup lives, not just startup businesses, because that's the essence of real entrepreneurship is seeing your life as your ultimate enterprise. The problem is that the more you do, the more you strive, the more you achieve, the higher you go, the more you notice it when it's not there. Look, if you never do anything in your life, how are you going to know when you're not doing it anymore? But the higher you go, the further you fall was the whole point. Now, that's really hard on people. And one of the things that I found was that I always thought that you, if you if you made it, if you did, if you were Andrew Yang. Then you could cruise. Then you'd be happy for the rest of your life. You'd be, you know, you, when you're, you know, 67 or 77, you'd be sitting there. <laughs> I can always look back in that time I like, ran for man, president. I'm a successful entrepreneur. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I had a great show. I mean, you're going to notch these things on sort of the on, on the notches in the belt. And that's what you've got to look back on. But that's not the way it is at no, all. No, no, it's true. The strivers struggle more precisely because those things are in the rearview mirror. And they become kind of addicted to the success after success after success. So number one is we got to break the addiction. But number two is we have to find what the next kind of success can be. And that follows the struggle structure of the brain. You're at a particular age. And, and when you're in your 30s, you're really in your prime. But but you find that the... the what are you saying? I'm kidding. <laughs> the horsepower that allows you to solve problems incredibly quickly, to do the analysis, to innovate, that slows down for everybody. But there's this That's the fluid intelligence. New, yes, called fluid intelligence. This comes from the work of Raymond Cattell, a social psychologist in Britain in the late 60s and 70s. But he says that there's a second intelligence curve that, that it increases when you're 47 that you're getting better and better at. That's your wisdom curve or your crystallized intelligence curve. And you can do things that you could never do before and you can do them better and they're actually more satisfying. If you jump onto that curve, you figure out what you're supposed to do with that curve, the world is your oyster and it's not even gonna decline all the way into old age. That is the promise of old age. Yes, and you see this arc, let's say, uh, in sports, which yeah. you use in the book a fair amount. And the curve is shorter because right. clearly your physical prowess may max out in your early 30s, uh, which is earlier than it would be yeah. you know, in most any other arena. Um, and then you see some athletes transition to media, to coaching. A lot right. of them become, let's say, high school coaches uh, in their hometowns. Right. And this is a natural uh, facet of growing crystallized right. intelligence because it's what people think of as wisdom, more or less, right. where, where you can coalesce a set of experiences or ideas and then uh, wrap them up in like a, you know, a few pithy messages. Yeah, that's right. To go from performer to teacher. This is the key. You're really good at telling what doing what other people tell you to do. The answer that for, for those of us who are in knowledge work, for, for answering the questions that other people pose to us faster, better, with you know more innovative solutions, so you're the the brand new law associate in the firm. You can you can crack the case faster than anybody else. You can write the code faster than anybody else. I could write you know early on in my career as an academic, I was doing this sophisticated math modeling using early artificial intelligence algorithms to model public policy processes. I can't even read the math I was doing in those days, and and now on the second curve, which is the the instructor curve. I'm able to look at what other people are doing and say, 
I know the story that this is telling together. So I can write a column now about happiness that I never would have been able to write before. So I can take 15 pe people's research, I can translate it into the language that humans can understand and put it together in a story such that people can read it and, and improve their lives with it. That's crystallized intelligence, is knowing the why, knowing the sort of the, the big picture of what's going on as opposed to simply answering questions more quickly and more innovatively than other people. Yeah, and your columns do an excellent job of that. Where you can tell you're picking from different sources <laughs> or, or yeah. authors, and then you distill it. Now, when I was reading your book, I will confess to having a complex set of reactions. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, the myself. idea, yeah. I mean, nobody wants to say, look, a book that starts off with what goes up must come down. And so if you're really, really cruising, it's going to come down. You better be ready and get on the next curve so you can go up and stay high. But nobody wants to know that they're gonna decline, but I gotta take a two by four to the chops of the readers at the very beginning to get their attention. Yeah, and you talk about how even in person when you say this to a CEO, they're like, oh, that's not me, because I'm just gonna keep on freaking speeding along until the wheels come off. Totally, it's like, it's like, it's like work, 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 croak. That's like the CEO model in New York. We're sitting here in New York City and that's the, the finance hedge fund king model is work till you, die. And the truth is you're, you're going to decline. And that's normal. It's actually a good thing because it's your signal. Like you're an entrepreneur and you're a successful entrepreneur. And one of the things that entrepreneurs have in common is that where everybody else sees a problem, they see an opportunity. That's the key aspect of the entrepreneurial orientation where even dumb things like, man, there's no good bars and restaurants in this neighborhood. The entrepreneur's like, I'm going to open a bar. Or when, Solve that problem. Yeah, you see a problem, you see, that's an opportunity, it. but that's a good thing. It's an exciting thing, and that's how we have to see our lives. When you see something declining in your, in your ability to solve a problem quickly, this is not failure. This is opportunity to move to the next thing, and the next thing is for you to become, you, you got to go from kind of your Elon Musk brain to your Dalai Lama brain, and every one of us can do that if we cultivate it, and this is a how-to guide on how to cultivate that second phase. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Uh, so I'm going to share a little bit of my personal experience uh, running for president in the aftermath 
So I decided like you're to, like every man. It's like eh, sure. ran for president and it's aftermath, well, right? Be, because it is very much tied to some of the, yeah. the, the the things you say in the book, and that that's one of the reasons I had a complex set of reactions, honestly. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I decided to run in early 2017 mm -hmm. uh, after Trump won, and I was like, okay, things are not going well. Uh, maybe <laughs> I, I can do something about this, uh, and then. Declare in 2018, and I become completely single-minded for the next two-plus years, right. where I joke with people that I had two goals. One, accelerate the end of poverty uh, in America and stay married. And those are my two goals, <laughs> my, my twin huh. North Stars. Uh, and I had this ambition and vision where I said, you know what, if I run for president to the best of my ability and people get behind me, I believe I can meaningfully advance the human condition, right. uh, our understanding of what's happening to us economically and socially, and the fact that uh, we do live in an era of potential abundance instead of just imposing scarcity on so many people, in right. my mind, artificially and unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. So the campaign ends. Uh, I suspend it in the beginning of 2020. I come off the trail. And at, at the end of my campaign, I was like this super-powered gladiatorial figure you know, showing up in yeah. seventh national debate and just, you know, at this point, like, you know, you, you feel familiar with, with things that would have been completely unfamiliar right. not that long ago. And, and I come off and there's a significant part of me that was like, OK, um, at this point, I should be pretty happy with my career or impact, because if you can die tomorrow and then it can say on your tombstone or an epitaph, like, hey, this guy helped advance <laughs> universal basic income or something like that. Um, that's pretty good. Totally. Uh, that was like, you know, like a, totally. a, a fair, fairly totally. um, uh, good high watermark. But then you wake up the next day and you're like, OK, I'm still here. Uh, there's still a lot of need, a, a lot of problems. Like, what do I do next? And there was this side of me, too, Arthur, where I went from being a completely anonymous figure circa 20. 18 to being quite well known by 2020. Right. And I'm not someone who's a natural extrovert. Like it, it wasn't something where I was like, ooh, my goal is to be famous or my goal mm -hmm. is to be president. Like I really didn't care. We don't really want people that have that as their main ambition. By the way, <laughs> there's, a, there's a problem with the self-selection effect into American politics. It's one of the reasons you were so refreshing is because clearly your ambition was not to be a, a famous guy or president of the United States. It was clearly to make progress in public policy and to help people's lives. That was the overarching ambition. And that was the allure. That was the reason that so many of us are like, finally, oh, finally. Thank you for seeing that and saying totally. that. No, that was quite evident. Uh, I'm so glad. So I felt that. Uh, and, but then I found myself in this really odd position where it's like, okay, now I'm famous. Now I might be able to try and do something positive. <laughs> like, what am I going to do with it? So I spent 2020 campaigning for Joe and in Georgia trying to help the Democrats win the Senate. And then I came back and was like, uh, I'm going to run for mayor of New York City because I think I can, I can do good. And th there's been this personal struggle I've had when I was reading this uh, description of the Strivers curse. Mm -hmm. um, and I was talking to my wife about it this morning um, before coming to the studio. And, and I said, you know, I've been very much an achiever. Right. Like I haven't measured my achievement in money or some other things. Um, I've been trying to have as positive an impact as I could in the time that I have. And I, I still am trying to do that. And so when you were characterizing uh, the the striver's curse and the the fact that at a certain point you want different things, 
like it, it, it did evoke a set of reactions in me because I have felt myself struggling with whether I'm supposed to maintain, uh, for example, like this public facing persona post the presidential campaign. Uh, whereas before this, I was a CEO. So there's part of me, it's like, hey, maybe I should like, you know, go find an operation and right. <laughs> like build it. Yeah. Um, uh, and so there, and one of the things I pride myself on is this adaptation um, you talk about. Yeah. Um, and so it's been an interesting journey for me. For sure. Um, uh, over this past number of months. But one of the things you do suggest fairly strongly, I thought, toward the end of the book, is for someone to make a professional transition. Yes. And, and you suggest that it's something of a leap of faith. It absolutely is. Look, the, nobody, there's no guarantee that the next thing you're going to do is going to be successful. There was no guarantee it was going to be successful being president of the United States, the, your run for president of the United States. Uh, yeah, completely. And, well, except that it wound up being very successful because what's the point? Look, if you're an idea person that's trying to change the agenda, then then winning a presidential campaign, the odds are very low of that. But a presidential campaign per se is a huge megaphone to get ideas into the public sphere. You were a missionary. Now, I've, I've had a lot of missionaries on both sides of my family. And the weird thing is that they get constant rejection and they always lose and yet they're happy. The reason they're happy. I, mean, <laughs> I, look, I like that equation. No, I mean, it's like, you know, words that no human has ever uttered before are, oh, good, there's missionaries on the porch. I mean, nobody has ever said those words, right? I mean, they're constantly getting the door slammed in their face. But they're filled with joy because they're bringing light where there's darkness. They're bringing what they believe to be truth where there is falsehood or where there is ignorance. And this is the point of what you were trying to do. You were you took the public spotlight. You said, this is a blessing to be in the public spotlight, notwithstanding what actually happens in the Democratic primary. I'm going to try to help solve these problems by injecting the ideas to solve these problems. That doesn't have to stop with a presidential campaign stopping. And indeed, it didn't because you were still very well known on the campaign trail and then running for mayor and now doing the show. This is a kind of a moving feast of ideas. You're trying to onboard these particular ideas. And this is what we need to do. Look, we all have a moral mission. We all have a, a reason for existing to, again, to lift people up and bring them together in our own way. And when the first set of skills when the, that, that we actually were, were gifted, we, we use them to the max. And when those things are not the right gifts, we have to look for new gifts, for new opportunities. The point is not winning a particular race. The point is actually advancing the cause of progress, whatever that happens to mean for each of our lives. And at the beginning, that might be innovation, which it was for you as an entrepreneur. Later on, it might be teaching, which actually it was for you as a presidential candidate. I watched your speeches. You're a professor. You're saying, here's, a, here's well, these ideas. I was joking with you when you came in that being an academic is a family business. Yeah. Uh, my, my brother, my father, my uncle, my grandfather all PhDs and professors. Yeah. So I've always been kind of the commercially oriented educational runt of the litter. It's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, no, Andrew got really, really rich, but you know, he doesn't have a PhD. So it's, I don't know where we went wrong. Or when I was a little kid, I would ask boys in school or girls in school, whomever, like, oh, you know, what is your dad's PhD in? Yeah. Because my dad had a PhD. So I imagined everyone's dad had a PhD. Of course, the lesson I learned was that that was not the right uh, question to ask it. <laughs> that pretty quickly because then a PH what? Yeah. So yeah, no, that's right. So I think, and each person watching us, by the way, all the strivers watching us, they're watching your show because they think it's interesting and you have guests that they that have something to say and they're interested in you and they're interested in the gestalt of this, which is a very kind of ideas oriented progress culture. 
um, they have to understand that their life is a, is, a, is a vehicle. Their life is a platform for creating value. The way you're going to create value is not going to stay the same all the way through your life because your abilities are going to change, but your dedication to progress and value shouldn't. So go with the flow, man. That's basically what I'm saying. You're going to get better and better and better, and then things are going to get harder on the first curve. The second curve where you actually become the sage, where you actually become the professor, whatever that means, as a mentor, as a teacher, as a helper, as somebody who's actually going. There's also the entrepreneur's curve. We talked about athletes. Oh, yeah. It's very, very analogous. Yeah. So the entrepreneurs, the founder, CEO, which, by the way, is an incredible grind. <laughs> oh, totally. It's like 16 hour days. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. You just have to like I like I joke that it's a bit like parenting um, where your business is like a a set of grenades and you just like jump on the grenade all day and then you get up and then like, oh, there's another one. <laughs> you, yeah. you jump on that. Child rearing, similar. So when you're the founder and CEO, uh, you're just jumping on grenades all the time and working your, your tail off. Um, and then maybe you do that twice, maybe three times. And then if you have some success uh, and you're very fortunate and you have a lot of excellent people around you, you end up being an investor right. or an advisor or and I, I had a call um, last week with a friend who resembles this, where he's a serial entrepreneur and an inventor, and then he said, "I've gone to the dark side. I've become a venture capitalist," uh, right. which is what what happens when you're not going to be the founder operator, and so then you wind up advising a bunch of younger youths. <laughs> yeah, but, but you have is pattern recognition at that point. What what older people have, crystallized intelligence is about pattern recognition. You're able to see what's going on. You have a sixth sense about what's going on because you have a ton of data and you're able to describe what's happening. That's the reason that older people are better at building teams. They're better at directing other people. They're better at teaching other people what they ought to be looking out for. So somebody who's older is going to be better in VC and somebody who's younger is better at being an operator uh, of an entrepreneurial firm. And we all have kind of the equivalent of that, whether we're doing data entry or whatever it happens to be. You could be a hot analytic lawyer early on and a managing partner later on. But the key thing is to remember that your skills are going to change and you shouldn't fear it. You should it's embrace like a, it. It's a different axis or exactly a different, right. a, a different and curve. And we need to be preparing for that. You know, when people who are 25 or 35 who are watching us, and a lot of your audience, of course, is of different ages and young people saying, well, that's way off for me. Well, you got to set the... You got to set. You can do the groundwork now to get ready to be to be creating value all the way over the course of your life, and to be comfortable with the change that's going to be happening in each one of us. And there's a whole bunch of things to do. And so this is basically a you know a ten step game plan. And I wrote it for me, by the way. I didn't intend to publish it. It was very it was very book. personal, and it was yeah. it was clearly. Uh, Something that you were digging through yourself. Yeah. I mean, I stepped down as a CEO because I, I did the research for this. This was a, this is me search, not research. And I was in the middle of my career as an executive that it was going great. I mean, it was, I was working 80 hours. You can weeks. tell us the truth, Arthur. There was a skeleton that was about to, I'm kidding. <laughs> I had a scandal was about to blow up. It was, this was a negotiated settlement. No. And it was. It was going really well on his face, but I could see, you know, I was looking at other people that were in the job. You wanted to was. be like Jordan and go out on top, man, <laughs> and then come back. <laughs> and it was interesting it was, it was because uh, looking at it, I knew that there, I had more, I had more value to create, but I knew that my skills were going to change on the basis of this research. You know, when you're a social scientist and you, you and actually eat your own cooking, man, it seems kinda, I was like, I'm more like taking out my own appendix. It was, you know, this was an eight-year research project so that I could create a strategic plan for my happiness for the rest of my life, which I started when I was 48 years old. Wow. And and I, I did the research and I got 
That's I was halfway incredible. through the research and I, and I decided I needed to leave my job. Wow. I quit my job because of my own research and I went back to academia. I quit my political party because of my own research. But continue. Did you quit your political party? Yeah. You're not a Democrat. No. You're an independent. Yeah. Me too. Oh, wow. Look at that. Yeah. Um, so I've been an independent so, before it was cool. You definitely. Yeah, it was a long it was time. Cool. I've been 15 years I've been an independent. Yeah, yeah and uh, the think tank you ran was, uh, I'd consider it centrist, independent. Yeah, very independent, um, very free, or enterprise oriented. I ran the American Enterprise Institute. Oh, wait, so, someone here is going to yell at me and be like, they're not. <laughs> of course, because this is a polarized time. You know, they're yeah, people going to yell at me because I love Andrew Yang. But, you know, look, the truth of the matter is you got to find truth where it exists and you have to make common cause with people who share your values. If we, Look, I believe in progress. You believe in progress. Yep. I believe there's a better future ahead of us. I believe the world is better than it used to be, but it can be better still. And, you know, that kind of optimism and hope may not be hip right now, but that's the future. That's the only future we've got if we're going to have a future that's worth anything. You're a very, very consistent source of uplift, man. I mean, it's, it's fun. I think you and I might share yeah. that in common, too, because I do have, uh, like, some feeling that other people are looking to, to me to be upbeat and stay upbeat, which, yeah. you know, and th this is one of the things I was going to joke with you about is like, let's say you go into someone's office and they're a personal trainer. Um, they better be in good shape. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, totally. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true because, and, and part of it is, it's okay if you're not there yet, but you have to be on the path. Yeah. This is the important thing. It's okay to to not be perfect. If you're, if you're a therapist, it's okay if you're neurotic, but you have to be working to get better. You know, you don't you don't want a marriage counselor who's who's cheating on his wife. That's not what you want because that's the that's that shows somebody's yeah. hypocritical and actually doesn't believe what they're saying. But in your case, you would need to be at least marginally upbeat for me to buy that you should be talking about how to be happy. Yeah, and you know the the, the change that I made when I stepped down as an executive when I stepped down from a chief executive job. That required huge amounts of fluid intelligence and went to a pure crystallized intelligence career. So what I'm doing now is I'm sharing ideas at the university, in my column, in books. Yep. I do speeches every week all over. When I'm talking about ideas, I'm in crystallized bliss. I'm truly, just as the data would suggest, I'm much happier than I was, and I'm getting happier. So you made this relatively dramatic career shift, uh, and it sounds like that there were some real uncertainties and some difficulties making the transition. Yeah, well, or I've, I've actually had four distinct careers. I, I've radically changed. I mean, early on, I was a classical musician. So uh, I left college at 19 at the request of the college. I was, I was invited. You got to, kicked out? Why? Well, you know, it turns out that I was. <laughs> Playing that French horn too loud. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't exactly get kicked out. It was a negotiated settlement. We, um, it, I, had, I had dropped all my required classes and was taking North Indian classical drumming and Indonesian dance instead, which, you know, you know, sticklers. It turns out that that's that's not the, you know the way to to meet your requirements. And so I left and I went on the road as a classical. Now that now that school is trying to take credit for you, right? <laughs> I, I, my guess is that my, my records have been expunged at this point. But I was I was uh, playing the French horn in, in in chamber music and then and then in the Barcelona Symphony for a bunch of years. Uh, and so that's where all I wanted to do. Talk about a career that will run its course. Yeah. If you, if you look at a professional dancer or a professional musician, I mean a, a lot of that. Uh, declines. Some classical musicians can go on a lot longer, but you find that the best, uh, usually the prime for classical musicians is mid-30s. 
is what we find, just because it, it uses fine motor skills. I peaked at 22, and I don't know why. And it was a real source of heartache for me um, that at 22, I was doing my best playing, and I, I just wasn't playing as well after that. And things that had been easy became hard. And, and it was weird because I was I had more experience, well, and I was practicing. You're, you're and, such a veteran curve hopper. So totally, then, uh, yeah. So I, I hopped curves by at 31. Um, I left. I, I did my, my bachelor's de degree by distance learning. Um, finished that a month before my 30th birthday and then went to graduate school, started my PhD and did that when I finished that in my mid thirties and then became an academic. So you, listening to this, you think it's too late to go get your degree, do, do something different. I mean, uh, Arthur would say different. Do it, do it. I mean, I've taken my career literally, not literally, because that's, this is a metaphor, metaphorically taken my career down to the studs four times. Wow. You know, from classical musician to economist to CEO and now as running this happiness enterprise and their professor happiness it's 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 it beats working <laughs> I'm not lie. professor but, human wisdom it's really fun and good and it's the right thing at the right time and each person watching us we we, we genuinely badly badly needed a professor of human wisdom uh, truly like i feel like you actually filled this massive need it's so fun it's so great. I couldn't have done it when I was 35 is the whole point. But then, of course, there's there's the, the, the natural fear that people have, the natural tendency that people have to to regret stopping doing something that they're already really good at because it feels like you're squandering the capital that you've built. Totally. Up. This is uh, I'm going to share this with people and make, make people. Feel, but, but it's. So I started on social media because I was running for president. Right. You can look it up. It's like before I ran for president, <laughs> I was not there. 6,000 like, followers. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, and then now, you know, I have several million across platforms. Yeah. And so you cannot look at that and be like, well, let's just, you know, stop or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, meanwhile, I'm friends with Dave Chappelle. Uh -huh. um, and the man is not on any social media yeah. <laughs> and, and you sit there talking to him, you're looking at him. Um, he is, in, in my opinion, also a very, very wise human like you. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I felt like his wisdom was in part because he just managed to freaking skip the entire social media thing. Some people can do that. And right now it's actually hard to do that because the communication mechanisms, they, they, now, they don't require that, but that's one of the ways that people ordinarily reach the public. Yes, like no one would advise some aspiring entertainer, like, hey, it's true social media, but you know, that's something that um, might be good advice, honestly. Well, will you be happier? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the data are abundantly clear that at very least turn off your notifications. If you're if you're in the public eye at all and people are following you, you should you should not be looking at your notifications because it's an anonymous zone of, of polarization and hatred. I mean, social media is a contempt machine. It's a real problem. And so if you're going to use it, use it like a tool. You know, don't be, you know, looking at the tool over and over again and obsessing on the tool over and over and over again. I mean, the, the way that you can get into a celebrity's head is tweet about them. And that, you know, that that famous famous celebrity has got three million followers is probably reading your tweet on her couch. Well, the, the, so there's uh, an NBA player who's sort of famous for this, uh, Kevin Durant, who mm. someone will say something nasty about him and then he'll just come in and <laughs> No, the answer, you know, a friend of mine, a friend of mine who's got a huge uh, social media following, he says that it, every, you know, he, he, he always succumbs to the tempta temptation to get into a Twitter war. And what he wants is to create, he's an inventor, like he's an entrepreneur like you, and he wants to create a, a, a device that will automatically give him a hundred volt shock every time he answers somebody on Twitter. So they'll get a version therapy to doing that because there's there's no upside to it. There's no upside. There absolutely isn't because all you're doing is somebody's punching up because they want to get I, some I attention. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a tweet 
and then thought about responding and then realized that by responding to it, uh, I would do two things I would not want to do. Number one is I'm going to end up uh, augmenting the attention paid to whatever the heck. Like right, right. now, that, that person, probably no one saw it. Um, and so by replying to it, all of a sudden, the spotlight goes on. Right. Uh, number two, I'm going to be fueling uh, this notion that, uh, hey, one way to stick it to Andrew would be to write something because he clearly yeah. sees it. <laughs> you, got in his head. you can get in Andrew's head. Andrew, Andrew's head. You know, so, so my friend Neil Ferguson, he sometimes says that, that he wouldn't, if he wouldn't let uh, somebody into his living room, he shouldn't let them into his brain. And this is kind of good Pretty advice good for advice, everybody. Yeah. Uh, and so he doesn't read his notifications. He's a really well-known guy. He's on. He has a lot of social media followers. He's an important public intellectual, but he's controversial sometimes. And so people are kind of going after him. And this is the culture that we're. I mean, look, this is what you were campaigning against for president. Yeah. Was this 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 culture of polarization? This culture of tribalism of of uh, us versus them. So we can't. Those of us that are dedicated to fighting against that, we can't fall prey to it. My my ministry, my apostolate is bringing people together and lifting them up. That the idea Amen. of happiness and love is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. It's inconsistent with that mission for me to write a nasty tweet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> wow, elevating the human condition. Um, so there, there's something you write about in the book that's related to your unconventional background, the yeah. fact that you've started over a few times, that you're the head of the think tank, and then people were arguing over whether you could provide a quality education uh, to people for $10,000 or less, and they were like, oh, you can't do it, because obviously, you know, it costs $200,000 to provide a quality education. <laughs> <laughs> and then you came out and said, hey, look, I'm the head of a fancy think tank, and I had a very uh, scrappy, unusual, low-cost uh, college education. Ten grand, soup to nuts, uh, including the books, including the sticker for the car, which I didn't put on the car. It was, um, and it was incredible. It changed my life. You know, when I was doing my bachelor's degree by distance learning, um, I didn't have the money to pursue a bachelor's degree. I was a musician. I didn't even have health insurance uh, for a lot of that time. It was tough. But if had, had, had it not been for entrepreneurs that were trying to find a new way for people to do an old thing, which is what entrepreneurs are all about. God bless America. I mean, there's no other place in the world where I would have been able to do this. I wouldn't have had a bachelor's degree, so I wouldn't have had a master's degree and a PhD and changed careers so, and all so that. So many schools trying to take credit for you now, Arthur. <laughs> I've like... been very lucky, and I've been very, very lucky, I have to say. Also, I had good parents that, that gave me a lot of confidence I could do these things. But the reason I wrote this book is because everybody has a trajectory of greatness in the realm in which they have gifts, but they can't be stuck on their old skills. They can't be stuck in the past. They got to be ready to jump and to be thinking about what they can do to lift other people up, what they can do that is that is their greatness and, and do it in a way that that their that their time of life actually makes it easiest and makes it best. So the data shows that a couple things will help preserve your happiness into a long life, particularly loving relationships, yeah. romantic relationships, and also real friendships. And there is this person who distinguished uh, for you between real friends and deal friends. Yeah. Uh, like the friends that you exchange transactions with, uh, either professional or otherwise, and then the friends that uh, will be with you through thick and thin, even uh, you know if there's nothing in it for them, right. uh, that sort of thing. Those Maybe are your useless friends. And this is the key <laughs> thing. It's interesting. So, so Aristotle talked about the difference between telic and atelic activities. And that meant atelic means uh, not good for something else, just, just intrinsically beautiful and fun in themselves. The reason that people love baseball is because not because baseball helps their career in any way, but because precisely because <laughs> like it's... The people, reason why people love baseball is because it's so 
devoid of any value. Yes, so devoid of any professional, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not instrumental. And we love the intrinsic things, not the instrumental things. Well, the same thing is true with people. We need people around us. We need friends who are in a weird way, useless, not worthless. I've known tons of worthless people that I love too, but that, that useless friends, you know, we have too many useful people in our lives. And, and it has to do with the fact that we, we, we incorrect, we have this incorrect uh, formula for living. And this is one of the things I talk about. If you want to get older, better and happier, you got to get your formula right. And the formula that people tend to follow is, is use people, love things and worship yourself. That's what people do. And it's completely wrong. It's not, it's not, actually not the path to enlightenment. It's, there. <laughs> it's close enough to right, actually, that it sounds right because it's the verbs and the nouns are messed up. The right formula is love people only, use things only and worship the divine, whatever that means for you only. And then things are in order. Then you've got your, your, your sort of happiness hygiene on point. And then you can actually proceed with your life and, 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 and see yourself in the dignity, which you should have. Arthur Brooks advice, don't use people. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but this is what useful friends kind of are. And I don't mean that we're, you know, we're using them, et cetera, et cetera. But if everybody in your Rolodex is a deal friend and, and the people you're talking about are not your real friends. I have this really close friend um, that I've had for many years. He's in Atlanta. And uh, he's somebody that sometimes I work with him and sometimes I don't. But I just look forward to talking to him. I talk to him a couple of times a week on the telephone. We make time wow, to talk to Wow, a couple times other. a week. I mean, that's a freaking... He's my friend. I love him. I love him. I can't... I'm super interested in what's going on with his family and his grandchildren. And and, and he's a, he knows my family. And he came up from Atlanta for my birthday. And it's just... And it's just... It's such a source of value to me because it's not useful to me. And, and he could be useful to me. I mean, he's a very super successful entrepreneur. He's like you. And yet that's not the thing that I really, really love. And everybody needs, one of the things that you need to get from your first curve to your second curve is more loving relationships. And that means yeah. companionate love on the romantic side, but it also means real friends, not deal friends. And what a lot of people have when they're, when they're stuck on that first curve and raging against changes in their, in their abilities is they got nobody to call. They have nobody to help them. They have nobody who cares and loves them enough through thick and thin to not think less of them. You know, we're really worried about what people around us think if we're, you know, stepping back from the greatness, stepping back from the limelight, or worse yet, if we're missing a step, then people say, like, I don't know, what's going on with Andrew? You know, see, see him at that meeting? It's like, I don't feel like he even read his briefings. I don't know what the dealio is. And, and as opposed <laughs> to your friend who's like, who cares? Hey, how, what's going on with your wife? What's going on with your kids? Friends don't judge that bad meeting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, that, or that bad, you know, presidential debate if it's if it's something that's really really splashy and fancy, like in your case. But all of us have a. An oh man, I got so many texts after each presidential debate. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and mean tweets, that. which you don't read. <laughs> I've read some of them. Um, <laughs> How to get into Andrew's head? <laughs> um, so I reflected on uh, my real friends and deal friends, yeah. uh, as you suggested. And it, it, it was an interesting exercise for me. But I love the idea of having friends that aren't useful. Yeah. Um, because you, you, everyone, I think, knows what I'm talking about or you're talking about there. Right. Where you're friends because you're friends. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, you know, if, if, he, if he or she becomes poor, you're still friends. And, and if they move to a different state, you're still friends. If they leave the industry and can't help you anymore, you're still friends. And, and you, you got to have that. There's no other way. I have a habit um, that I'd like to share that yeah. I, I think is a good one. Um, 
when a friend has a set, and this, this actually, this is gonna be, you know, this is a relatively recent development because I've become a public figure, and so I, I know other public figures, but whenever anyone's going through something shitty and I find out about it, I just send them a private message being like, hey, you know, keep your head up, it's gonna right. be fine, like da 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 da. Because I, I just know that they, they feel like all this stuff coming at right. them, uh, and I just want them to remember that it's nonsense. <laughs> For sure. You know why that's a really good thing? It's one of the things I teach in my class at Harvard that we have a tendency to think that, that the bad feelings that we get that are provoked by a bad event that is permanent. Because that's the way our, our mind wants us. You know, if, if, a, if a tiger's chasing you, you want in that moment to think that tiger's going to be chasing me forever. And so you, you muster all of your energy to get away. But the truth of the matter is that your brain, the bad feelings are going to dissipate. That's a phenomenon called homeostasis. You will go back to equilibrium. You just don't know it in that moment. And it's very, very important. I mean, sooner or later, your friend who's going through a tough time got fired, business went under, they got a really horrible article about them in the New York Times, whatever it happens to be, or on a smaller scale, you know, that they're, something happens. Those are pretty much the types of things I'm talking about, yeah. but continue. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and, and so they're, they're going to feel better. But when you, when Andrew writes a text saying, it's going to be okay, keep your head up, trust me, this is a, this is a one week story. Yeah. What you've done is you've accelerated the homeostasis of those bad feelings for that person. You can literally help somebody's basic negative emotions to dissipate. You can, you can, you can, you can affect the neural circuitry of your friend by simply sending a text saying, trust me, this is a one week story. You know, so yeah. I, I want to confess something else. This is a little bit of insight into, uh, into the life of, of someone who's in the public eye. So occasionally I receive those messages from friends being yeah. like, hey, you know, it, it's going to be fine. And then my reaction's actually mixed because I'm like, oh, shit, I guess they like they saw that. Like, I guess it must have been really bad. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, I guess they saw that freaking yeah. thing that I was like, yeah, no one's going to see that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get a bunch of texts. You're like, oh, I guess people did see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, th th so when I send these texts, it's for something objectively like I could not have missed. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. You know, it's interesting that uh, I, I, you know, that actually happened to me when I was first the CEO in Washington running this think tank at the, at the center of political controversy. And I handled something publicly really wrong. And I got just, I just got barbecued in the Washington Post and, you know, a bunch of, I, I just didn't handle it very well. And, uh, and, and I was feeling horrible. Like, this is going to dog me forever. Yeah, catastrophized, which is a real cognitive problem that people do. You know, something goes yeah, wrong, totally. you're like, this is going to be horrible forever. I thought this is going to dog me for my whole career. This is it. I failed as it's gonna CEO. It's going to be on your tombstone, it's gonna, man. Uh, it's it's going to be written on my tombstone. <laughs> you know, screwed up, you know, human resource issues or, you know, whatever it is. And, and my neighbor across the street was a grizzled Washington veteran. I lived in Bethesda at the time. And he has been hit, this guy had been through the wars a hundred times. And he says, so I saw in the paper. And I'm like, oh, you saw in the paper. He says, you know, I deal with crises all the time. On a scale of zero to 10 in severity, this is a 0 0.025. Wow, that's so nice to hear. And it was, at first I thought, you know, this SOB is minimizing my pain. And then I thought, no, 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 actually he's, he's quite objectively, he's assessing the severity of this problem. And he's helped, he helped me get back on, you know, homeostatically getting back to a, a kind of an emotional equilibrium. And, and so the key thing for us all to remember is when bad things are happening, they're not going to last. On the other hand, Andrew, when good things happen, they're not going to last either. And one of the things, one of the parts of the striver's curse that That's I talk right. about in this book <laughs> is that, you know, one of the things that a lot of people watching us, they have, they might not be, have an alcohol use disorder or be addicted to drugs, but they're success addicts. And one of the things that success brings you professionally and socially 
is that it gives you a hit of dopamine in your brain. And you you become an addict for that. You want the success hit again and again and again. And the reason you, you're never satisfied, the reason that it's so hard when you achieve something you, and you're off that mark is because you're in true deficit, dopamine deficit. And that's excruciating. The reason for that, that it doesn't last is the same reason that your bad feelings don't last because your brain has to go back to its equilibrium. It's got to go back to its baseline. And that's one of the things that we have to remember as well. You can't through more and more and more and more success, actually attain the satisfaction. You need to find a better, more sustainable curve. Yeah. Well, and furthermore, you need to manage not just your haves, you need to manage your wants. Yeah. You need a wants, one of the the great sources of consolation. Would you rather be special or happy? That's one of the questions I ask in the book. And, you know, as I'm interviewing this lady for the book, and she was a, a Wall Street titan. And, uh, and she's I know telling who it me, is, and I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know. Like, I'll take it to my grave. I mean, I'll, I don't divulge any identities in this book because some of the stuff is so sensitive. But you know, this this woman who had, has had an incredible career on in Wall Street, but she's noticing that she's st- sort of starting to miss a beat. And there are a lot of things in her life that she doesn't like. And I said, well, step back. You know, work on your marriage and your relationship with your adult kids, and and stop drinking and get into the gym and and don't worry about work so much. You know, you've got all the money you could ever need. Why do you keep doing this? And she said, "You know, I think I'd prefer to be special than happy." And I thought to myself, "That's pretty common. That's the success addict's anthem. They prefer to be special than happy because special gives you the hit. Gives you the hit. You know perfectly. There's no heroin addict on the planet that thinks they're finally going to have had enough heroin." There's no alcoholic who thinks, oh, I'm just going to have three more bottles and I'm going to be, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop spontaneously because I'm not going to need it anymore. They just prefer to be high than happy. And this is what we do a lot. You can't get to your second curve unless you, unless you get off that, that wheel, that hamster wheel of hit, 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 success, success. Having better wants. You know, one rule of thumb I'm taking from this conversation that that? I, I think people should take to heart. What's that? Visit one friend per year for their birthday. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, no. It's it's a, it's an astonishing thing. You you're never sorry you did that. You you think ah, can I afford to do it? Do I have the time? I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy, Arthur. <laughs> no, but it's so true. You know, and it's it's you know all the things that I remember. It's incredible. You know, um, I remember one time I was debating, you know, whether or not to go to a friend's house for dinner because I'm so busy. I just didn't really have time, and and I went anyway. And I'm like, ah, this is gonna be really late, and I don't remember anything about what I was doing, what I was so stressed out about. But that night we were, we had dinner, it was in, in Maryland and up on, on the Severn River, which is it's a beautiful place. And it was, it was at dusk. And he's this friend of mine, he said, oh, I want you to see this thing. And he took me out to his garden and there was this flower and all the flowers were closed. It was dusk. All the flowers were closed. And he says, watch a flower. I'm like, what? He says, what? Watch the flower. I'm like, okay. And 10 minutes later, it suddenly opened just spontaneously like, the and they all open at the same time turn out they pop open at dusk and i was like <gasps> and i remember that i'm going to remember that it was intensely satisfying i'm going to remember that for the rest of my life i'm not going to remember the work that i i forewent that evening that was the evening of the flower and this if you go to your friend's birthday if you if you do something that's meaningful you know if you look at something if you if you if you narrow cast into the beauty that is the little things in life then you'll get the intense satisfaction that you actually seek. But sitting on that treadmill, hit, 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 you're never going to get enough dopamine that you're going to be ultimately satisfied. One fascinating tidbit in your book was that apparently the loneliest professions are doctor and lawyer. Yeah. 
Uh, and so I, I wanted to dig into that a little bit, though I did remember because I was an attorney in a past life for five months. And uh, you went to law school for three years and then you practiced as a lawyer for five months. Yeah, that's right. My, my Asian <laughs> parents were very pleased. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> they were very pleased for five months. <laughs> no, no, they, they, I mean, they were pretty, pretty sad. But um, I've had that lawyers, too. Are you kidding? I didn't go to college until I was 30. I had a gap decade. Imagine how fun that was for my professor parents. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so, parents, take it easy. Your yeah, kids can always come Everything back can turn out okay. <laughs> I do remember reading at the time that lawyers had the highest average alcohol consumption yeah. of any profession. Yeah. Um, but this spoke to this striver's curse you write about, um, in large part because apparently a lot of high achievers self-medicate via alcohol. They do. Um, according to the OACD, as a matter of fact, um, alcohol use disorder is predominates among people with high socioeconomic status in the United States, especially among men. Which is not the stereotype. No, nope, no. Nope. We think about people who are down and out as getting drunk. And the people who are using alcohol to blunt anxiety, to make it possible to unwind, to get the machine off, is actually more common for, for strivers than it is for people who are not strivers. Now, the, the truth is that addiction is a very funny thing. We tend to become a Addicted to the to the thing that self medicates us for our particular malady, and so you find, for example, that 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 kids, adolescents, who are struggling to focus, who have maybe some attention deficit issues, but it's it's unremediated, they tend they're way more likely to get addicted to nicotine. You know, they're they're way more likely to start smoking at 13 or 14 because nicotine is an unbelievably effective uh, ADD or ADHD drug. It brings it it draws it sucks dopamine into the prefrontal cortex and wow. allows you to focus. Uh, so the same thing is true if you have a lot of stress, you have a lot of anxiety, you have a lot of, a lot of trouble making the world slow down because you're such a striver. Alcohol is incredibly effective at turning the switch on that. The problem is it's a messy drug and it's a dangerous drug. There's a lot of data that show that, you know, that one of the biggest reasons that people wind up getting unhappier as they get older is precisely because of alcohol use. The alcohol is not because of the happiness problems. The causality runs in the other direction. Alcohol is a really dangerous thing that we have. And for everybody watching us, you know, so one of the things I talk about in this book is if you want to grow old well, you want to get on that second curve. You want to age gracefully. You look at your alcohol use and look at your substance use. But the maybe the most dangerous substance of all for the strivers is the success addiction. This idea, the self-objectification, where I'm an effective person. I'm a, I'm, I'm going to make. It's, it's weird, and we all fall prey to this. My, my father died a long time ago. I mean, my father died in 2002 when he was pretty young, and I still think all the time. I wonder if he'd be, I wonder if he'd be proud of me. I wonder if he'd be proud of this book. I wonder if my dad read this book. What do you think of this book? We're, we tend to, we're very tied to the expectations even of long dead relatives. And for strivers where that, those, where that, that, that level of expectation is sky high, it's very easy to turn into a workaholic. It's very easy to turn into a success addict. And that's a tyranny. I, I will say I somehow liberated myself from the parental expectation thing some time ago because check it out. So I, I yeah. so, so I leave the uh, legal field. They're very sad. And then they just lie and tell my friends I'm a lawyer for a number of years You're afterwards. You're still a lawyer, technically. You <laughs> yeah, the bar. That, that, yeah. This is true. Um, so then I, I'm a part of some failed startups. Uh, then I become CEO of an education company. Eventually, I decided to run for president. My parents are completely negative on that decision when, when, yeah. I, when I tell them. A disreputable decision? Well, to be a politician. So, yeah. And, and now one just a sidebar, I go around uh, trying to encourage people from um, 
traditionally apolitical backgrounds to get more in involved, including right. Asian Americans. And I tell them all the time, it's like, look, I get it. I grew up in a household where my parents never talked about American politics, did not get the message. They, that are, they're immigrants, right? Yeah, they're immigrants from uh, Taiwan. From Taiwan. Um, from and, and originally from the mainland. Uh, the no, they, they actually grew up in Taiwan. Taiwan, which is unusual. Most of them are they go green mainland. or blue? Um, are they are they uh, the are they the 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 Kuomintang? No, they they were just hanging out on farms. The, uh, okay, so from <laughs> southern Taiwan, probably right. My my father's from southern Taiwan. Ah. He's from like a farm near a pond, and and then my my mother. Uh, so they're grew deep in Taipei. Taiwan. They're deep Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. So. Never heard a word about American politics right. uh, in, in the household. Never got any messages being like, oh, you're going to do this thing. I tell them, hey, I'm going to run for president circa 2017, which you can imagine 2017 that's a pretty far out statement because their son, it's like, well, he's done some things, but whatever. Yeah. It's a dangerous business to to get your status from the uh, achievements of your kids. And I understand it. I mean, I'm very proud of your kids. Really proud of my kids. I mean, they're doing good things and and and. They're, it's they're very Asian, by the way, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of my one of my kids is Fujianese. She's the one who's, in some ways, most like me. Oh, and, and yeah, adopted? Yeah, yeah, adopted from a, an orphanage in in Fuzhou, as a matter of fact. Um, she's wonderful. She's in she she after COVID made a run for the border, and now she's doing she's doing college in Spain. Wow. Her mother's Spanish, and so she speaks Spanish. But she's like, no, it's like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a life entrepreneur. So this and 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 so and I have one who you know graduated from Princeton, did really well, and he's he's now he's teaching math, which is his vocation is to bring the beautiful the beauty of mathematics to 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 young people. And I have another son who's a marine. I mean, they're all just kicking butt. But if I actually think about getting my own status from the achievements, from the considerable achievements, from the efforts of my kids, it's very easy for me because they want my. They, they want my pride. They, they care what I think about them, for sure. It's very easy for them to, to get stuck on their first curve, to not be able to try new things, to, to be afraid of failing. One of the best ways that you can inculcate a fear of failure in your own kids is to tell them, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of the thing that you're doing because then they think, okay, so if I, I don't do keep this, doing this to they won't be it. proud wow. because they're, if it, look, if you I heard that here, parents, <laughs> don't tell your kids you're proud of them. You got to be careful with that. It's a really, it's a, it's to say for one of the things is to, to be proud of the right thing. Not to say I'm proud of your achievements to say, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of your character. Maybe say it to them after they fail. Because then it'd yeah. be like, well, you tried and failed. I'd be like, yeah. oh, good, keep doing that. Yeah, yeah, and and for sure, particularly if they failed, they failed meritoriously. Yes, if they failed because they didn't work hard enough, or they were lazy, <laughs> or they cheated, then that's not so. I'm really like, I'm really, I'm really proud of that failed bank robbery, son. I mean, that's that's obviously not the way to go. But there's, you know, thinking about the things that we're talking about in this book and about this conversation, you can deflect those things onto your kids in in, in pretty destructive ways as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on that as a dad. My kids are younger than yours, and yeah. so I have no idea if they're going to turn out okay, honestly. <laughs> Some tells me, Andrew, that they're going to be fine. I don't know. Well, they're going to go through things. It's interesting. You know, um, one of the reasons that, that people tend to uh, get unhappier, slightly unhappier through their 40s and until their early 50s. Is it these darn kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the kids bring lots and lots, adolescent kids bring lots and lots of meaning, but not a whole lot of enjoyment. Um, I mean, some are different. But boy, it was tough. I mean, it was, it was tricky when my kids were adolescents, to be sure. And uh, good news, it, it generally speaking turns out okay. <laughs> I believe. So one of the most powerful messages in your book uh, was that people end up often uh, seeking a different relationship with religion or spirituality yeah. or faith as right. they get older. 
and it's it's possible I just didn't know this. That I was like, do people um, become more religious as they uh, age across the board as like a, a general trend? That's yes. from the book. I got the sense that, that, that they was do. The case, they yeah. do generally speaking. And one of the so the, the empirical regularity is if you are from a religious household, you'll generally speak. So, some people will maintain an enormous amount of religious intensity over the course of their lives. Um, and they'll they'll go from kid faith to grown up faith relatively seamlessly. But a very common pattern is that there's a lot of questioning in the late teen years, especially in the 20s, and then usually in the late 30s to early 40s, people realize you know life is life is really messy, and not everything falls in particular buckets. And so I can't really re reject the existence of God, for example, because there's pain in the world. There's lots of contradictions in the world that are that I can't understand, that I can't resolve. And I, I feel a, a sense of the transcendent. I feel a sense of the metaphysical. And they go on a faith journey as a result of that, either with their traditional faith or, or, or a new faith that they're trying to experience, or even a non-religious spirituality, or even just a philosophy or, or wisdom tradition. There's a pull, generally speaking, to, to zoom out and to find these cosmic verities. You know, people really want in their 40s and 50s in particular to understand the why of life. And the why of life is simply not gonna come by spending an extra 10 hours a week at work. <laughs> it, it turns out that's not gonna- oh, wait, suddenly... wait, 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 I've got the source of meaning, Arthur. I've got it. <laughs> TikTok. Buying more stuff on Amazon. It's like, no, no, that's not gonna, getting a boat. I mean, it's just, that's not it. And, and yet people kind of act like it is, but they yearn for something else. So one of the things I talk about, you want to get on your second curve. If you want to go from innovation to wisdom, then one of the things that you need is a, is a more of a cosmic sense of the why of life. And a, a spiritual journey is the way to go. It's just, it's such an adventure. And by the way, it's so... It, it gives you so much peace because it, it, it encourages you to stop focusing on me, 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 my stuff, my job, my car, my money, my future. Uh-uh. It's like, you know, the Dalai Lama, I, I mentioned him a bunch of times in the book because I've been working with him pretty closely for the past You're 10 years. You're just name-checking. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> he, he blurred the book, you know. But if you notice, it's the calmest blurb ever. It's like Arthur Brooks has written a book about how we age and change. Because you know? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's how a Tibetan Buddhist would blurb a book, I think. Yes. And, but, but You know he wrote it then. It wasn't the staff. No, it was it was His Holiness. It's in Tibetan. Um, it's extraordinary, you know. That, but you know, the, the way that he the, the way that he talks about um, you know, the importance of a spiritual journey is to basically say you need the peace of understanding you are one of seven billion and what that means. So contemplate that for a second. That doesn't mean you're an ant or you're insignificant. It means that there are seven billion sisters and brothers that we are part of a cosmic whole bound together, obliged and privileged to be bound together in love. What does that mean? Well, you can't just know what that means intellectually. That's a, that's a, there's a spiritual connection there that that's all about. And you can't get that unless you actually do the work and the work is intensely pleasurable and satisfying. Now, I thought that your lesson there reminded me of something someone else said. I'm just gonna throw this out mm -hmm. and you can react to it. Mm -hmm. Um, said that religion has been lost for many Americans, uh, that you know, religiosity has gone down, church attendance, like a bunch of... They're outfit. called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who classify as having no religion. It was 1% the year I was born, and it's about 34% of Americans today. So there's an attendant loss of meaning, community, structure, purpose, fulfillment, and then people are kind of grasping for something to replace it. Yeah. <laughs> and what they're landing on, not that great a lot of the time. Right. It turns out that there was a lot of uh, wisdom and truth uh, and divinity in traditional 
religious uh, communities and traditions. Right. And one of the suggestions that the person had, which really just you know made me do a double take, but then I thought had some truth to it, was that what has replaced uh, religion for many Americans is some combination of political polarization and even media tribes, where if you consume a certain media's uh, offerings, then you, you, you're kind of joining a cult. Right. And, and you know people refer to people who watch certain channels, a cult, this, cult, that. But that really stuck with oh, me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. David Foster Wallace, the great American writer, one time said that everybody worships something because people are made to worship. We're just we're just worshipful creatures. He thought that that was a, an innate feature of humankind. And, and if you take away something that's worthy of worship, you will replace it with something that's unworthy of worship. And it doesn't matter who you are. We all know intellectually that politics is is unworthy of being elevated to the level of religion. And yet this is, I mean, look, the, your campaign was related to trying to, to de-religiousize and de-tribalize uh, ideology, a political ideology in this country. It's like, let's talk about how to, how to bring people forward and understand each other across ideological lines. Well, that's basically like going to people who are extremely religiously fundamentalist and say, make common cause with this other group of apostates and heretics. You know, what, what we've done in this country, and this is one of the big problems that we have, is that people are worshiping at the altar of American politics. And their preachers, their TV preachers, are on at 7 and 8 and 9 on cable channels. That's what's going on. And, and their favorite columnists at, at, at these in, important uh, uh, newspapers who are saying the things that, that, they, that they are probably not. They're speaking the gospel. <laughs> yeah, but, and they're but not maybe, the right gospel. They're, speaking. <laughs> they're saying these, what they believe to be these hard truths in harsh ways. And they want the fundamentalist gospel because we need some truth. And if we're not going to actually get it from the, from, by doing the, the real spiritual work, which, and, and every good spiritual tradition, by the way, completely militates against these ideas and teaches something fundamental about the nature of humanity, which is we are all brothers and sisters with radically equal dignity. Fellowship. No yes. exceptions. Yeah. And yet these fake religions that we've gotten into in this country that are tearing us apart, and by the way, making us miserable. I got making the data on very, happiness. very, very unhappy humans. The more, that's like one of the empirical regularities that I see in the data again and again, and is this happiness guy is that the more time you spend thinking, talking about, and reading about politics, the more your happiness will fall. <laughs> it's so rough, man. Like, so I, I gave a book talk the other day, um, and I said, hey, who here has heard of Senator Lisa Murkowski because she's been in the news? Yeah. And then some people raise their hands. And I said, if you didn't raise your hand, congratulations. You're not a political junkie. You have a life, and you're probably happier as a result. And then, like, I, I got they a laugh. laugh. <laughs> people <laughs> but, had their hand up and like, oh. But, but it, I mean, it, it, it is true. Like, you're paying attention. So this is one reason why... Um, there, there's a, an argument, conventional politics, it's like, hey, be engaged, be informed. Right. Uh, and then there are a lot of young people in particular who are unplugging from it, being like, hey, it makes me miserable. Right. It makes me crazy. Like, you know, I'd rather not be informed right. <laughs> or, or right. the rest of it. If this is what it means. And one thing I say to people is like, look, that's a purely rational decision they're making at this point because that like that that's self-protection. Oh, yeah. But yeah. And that, that's what we've turned politics into, unfortunately. Yeah, truly. And so the, the, the answer is is not to be an extremist. It's it's good to be involved. It's good to be informed. Um, but let's think about what actually that means and putting it into action in your life. What does it mean to be a good citizen? Watching a cable channel and getting mad is not good citizenship. 
you know, getting involved in your community. Volunteering is, at a local organization, helping yeah. someone in real life. Like, I mean, ask the people good. who are outraged about whatever the last national election was or Supreme Court pick or whatever, just like out of their minds on social media, wrapped around the axle in a big way, right or left, who won the school board superintendent election in their community yeah, in the last one? They can't tell you. They can't tell you. I mean, this is there's a lot of new political science research that shows that this is driving happiness down, but it's also driving citizenship down. Oh, this no. is making it worse. So watching a cable show is not a substitute for actual citizenship. And so what I recommend to people, just as a rule of thumb, <clears throat> is that you shouldn't read more than 30 minutes of news a day, and not more than half of that should be political news. You can get everything you need to know about American politics unless you're in the business, unless you're in politics or policy or something, in about 15 minutes a day. You're going to know what you think. You're going to know who you like. You're going to know who you agree with. And then put it down. There's nothing else that's going to happen over the course of this day that, that should affect your existence. And not more than another 15 minutes of that should be sort of all the news around you. And then pay attention to your life. Pay attention to your relationships. <laughs> and, and, you know, be involved here. Be here now. The good old Ram Das used to, you know, he wrote that, you know, be here now. But that's the essence of living mindfully to simply notice what's going on around you. And like 100% guaranteed, you'll get happier. Yeah, that, there was a long-term happiness study that you cite, very influential. And mm -hmm. I had just, a, a, I think it was seven behaviors yeah. um, that are more likely to lead to you aging happily and gracefully. And of course, I, I immediately, I'd be a data guy. I was like, ooh, ooh, like, let, let me, like, you know, make sure I'm doing these seven. Um, so we talked about a couple of them already. Uh, you know, don't drink excessively. Don't, don't smoke too much. Uh, having Actually, good friends. Actually, don't smoke. Or don't uh, smoke at all. Don't smoke or quit now. Quit early if you can. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Eat in a, in a moderate way. Exercise. Don't be crazy about it, but, you know, take care of your body. Um, make sure that you're a lifelong learner. That doesn't mean you have to be, you know, go to Harvard. It just means you need to read books and, and, and learn about things, ideas, not just politics. Obviously, better not politics. Um, and make sure that you have a good active coping mechanism. But the most, the, most, the most important of all, far and away on a walk that matters, is love. Is friendship love, real and friendship. companionate love with your partner if you have a romantic relationship and, and failing that very close friendships, um, staying close to your nuclear family. I mean, tending the garden is really important. I mean, there's this famous scene at the end of, you know, Voltaire's famous novel Candide. And at the end, you know, they go through all these adventures in life. And it's a metaphor for all the, you know, the terrible things that happen in life. And it's one thing after another. They're attacked and kidnapped by pirates. And one of them gets his buttock amputated it's horrible and at and the they end they call him only like, you know <laughs> the, it's like it's like running for president anyway so and at the yeah. end um they're like running for mayor but continue <laughs> new york man you chose new york you should have chosen tacoma washington so they at the end they're they're at the end of the novel they're kind of summing up life and the main character said the last line of the book is we just need to tend our garden that's it. We need to tend our garden. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean cut yourself off from existence? No. Pay attention to the actual things that you can grow. Pay attention to your, I mean, pay attention to the transcendent and, 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 and worship the divine. Absolutely. But make sure that your actions are dedicated to Just your children and be to good your family. To your, yeah, if your mom, like, I thought when I was reading this, I was like, I got to call mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is key. I mean, it's funny. It's one of the things I tell my students is one of the assignments I give my students is, you know, call your parents today. Yeah, really. It's really important. And, and then the relationship for young adults to have with their parents is not like an ATM machine, not like an emotional ATM machine where <laughs> it's like, give me counsel, give me money, give me help. It's transactional. Give me advice. Yeah. yeah. It's like call up mom and say, 
what are you doing today? And actually treat your mom like an adult. I, I still remember the, this day. Uh, I got a call from my mom. It was March of a particular year. I was busy. I was a teenager, late teens. I was annoyed. And then, um, uh, I, you know, I was a bit of a jerk or a lot of a jerk. Turns out a huge jerk, as the story will demonstrate. <laughs> um, and then, um, and then toward, at the end of the call, she said, Andy, it's my birthday. You forgot, like, you know, like, uh, and and then hung up. And then I felt six inches tall and was like, I am the worst son in the world. I've not forgotten a birthday since, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to say, because you can tell that was, uh, you know, an experience It needed for to me. teach you a lesson, but this is how a lot of people will wind up. People who te treat their family very transactionally and treat their parents very transactionally. It's just a lost opportunity. It's not just, it's not evil or bad. It's just a missed opportunity. And, and you know, there are a lot of cases, you know, I was not very, not that close to my, my, my parents. I mean, we were always friendly, I was good, but we were, I always thought, yeah, I gotta get closer to my parents, I gotta learn more about them. And then, then they died. Yeah. My parents died young. And so I thought to myself, well, that's a huge missed opportunity, but it isn't because now I have a completely different kind of relationship with my adult kids. I mean, I learned the lesson that I wish I had learned with my adult, with my aging parents, and, and I have a much closer, I talk to all three of my kids every single day. And I'm still interviewing them a little bit. You know, I'm still, <laughs> <laughs> but I, ha I learned that lesson and that's actually really quite important. That's one of the lessons of, you know, getting older and getting on the second curve. Yes, well, this book was so filled with human wisdom. I'm going to uh, give it to my brother um, because I think he could use it as well. And he's I recommend a physician, right? he's a professor. Um, and I, this, the, I was reading this; it very much spoke to me. But I was like, "Oh, my, my brother needs to read this." And if you know, if you have anyone in your life that resembles someone who's a bit stuck on an achievement curve or any curve or isn't tending the garden. Um, from Strength to Strength uh, is an incredible read. It's so important. And it even gives you seven words to live by, which I'm going to have Arthur deliver. I know them too, but... Yeah, I'll, re I'll remind you because we brought it up in the conversation, but it's the last words that are worth remembering is use things only. Love people only. And worship the divine only. And if we did those things... Uh, humanity would be much, much better off as a result. Thank you so much, Arthur. And this is a, a massive contribution. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing.